A listener's note before we begin. The following episode contains adult themes and content of a violent nature. It may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. It was just before 11 a.m. on April 19, 2020, when Amelia Butler got a call from her mom's cell. She answered, and the line went dead. Gina Goulet never said anything. Amelia immediately started to worry. She called back, and then she tried the landline, over and over, and no one answered. They'd been texting that morning. They had seen RCMP updates on social media about a manhunt for a suspect in a mass shooting that began overnight. They recognized the name of the shooter. He was a colleague of Gina's, a fellow denturist. She was nervous when she found out who it was because um, she knew that he knew where her clinic was, where it was in her home, and uh, it made her nervous, so. Gina had no way of knowing what was about to happen. She tried to call me pretty well. I'd say it was like the last thing that she tried to do. And so I tried to get a hold of her back and didn't get a response, didn't get an answer on any of her phones. Amelia knew something was wrong. She got in her truck and started driving, but she had no idea what she would find when she got to Gina's house. I'm your host, Sarah Ritchie. This is 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, Episode 12, In the Dark. For years, Gina Goulet had beaten the odds. She was diagnosed with a brain tumor in 2016, but she wasn't going to let it stop her. After surgery and treatments, she was soon back on her feet doing the things she loved, traveling and working. But in late 2019, she had a setback. A doctor found cancer in her kidney, and she needed another surgery in February 2020. And that one, you know, was a bit of a cakewalk, I guess, compared to the brain tumor for her. Not that any of it's easy, but, um, I mean, she just took it all on the chin. That's for sure. She didn't really stop ever doing any of the stuff that she wanted to do, so. 27-year-old Amelia was there for her mom every step of the way. You know, I was with her for, like, every appointment, every treatment. I drove her, you know, in back when her brain tumor um, first was diagnosed. And then again um, this year and kind of late last year when the other one was discovered. So, I mean, we got a lot of time together in those moments and those appointments. And I wouldn't have had it any other way. But uh, it's, just what, it's just what we did for each other. She would have done the same for me, hands down. It had always been the two of them. Gina was a single mom, Amelia an only child. They were always extremely close. More like sisters than uh, mother and daughter, I'd say. Yeah, she was my best friend. Gina was warm and outgoing. She loved animals, especially horses and her dogs, a German shepherd named Ginger and a chihuahua named Ellie. She embraced new things with enthusiasm, like the time she and her friend Jody McMullen went to Cuba a few years ago They took some Spanish lessons at the pool. But for Gina, this wasn't just something to do as a tourist. She made it part of her life. When we came home from that trip, she actually joined a class and became, you know, began taking Spanish lessons and has ever since. And then she joined salsa dancing. I remember last summer, she would go into the waterfront in Halifax and they would have these 
big salsa dances right on the waterfront and she would go and she would take part in it and you know like she she just loved it and you know she would go into a room say a salsa dancing class or spanish-speaking class and she would come out of that with friends you know and she would go by herself like she was so brave to do anything and you know she was so independent between the re-emergence of her cancer and the unknowns of COVID-19, it was difficult for Gina to be her independent self in April 2020. Luckily, Amelia and her husband lived just about half an hour away. She was nervous with the pandemic and, you know, the not working part definitely was some added stress for her. But I would say, you know, a big part of it too is the fact that she had cancer and she, you know, was really concerned just about um, it maybe affecting her more than um, it would have otherwise if she hadn't have uh, been through that. So we didn't really get to see each other, um, which uh, I think back on that a lot, it's really difficult. But, um, you know, I kind of would text her, talk to her and do the once a week grocery run and leave it on her on her porch and chat with her for a few minutes, but that's really the most I got to see her from the beginning of the pandemic up until the 19th. Like many people who were unable to work during the pandemic, Gina was missing the routine and missing her clients. She absolutely loved uh, what she did, and she did it for, yeah, like 27 years, as long as I've been alive. So she was so... Yeah, passionate about just helping her clients. And, you know, she always just kind of like joked that she literally got to put smiles on people's faces, which is exactly, you know, um, her, her personality, just super outgoing and wanting to make people smile and was always joking and laughing. So, yeah, it suited her. It's not exactly clear to Amelia why her mother was targeted. As I mentioned earlier, she and the gunman were both denturists, and Nova Scotia is a small province. It's likely they knew one another through work. But Amelia said he wasn't someone Gina spent any time with. The search warrant applications police filed in court after the shootings offer some insight. The documents say the police asked the gunman's common-law partner if she knew the victims of his killing spree. And she told them she did know Gina, that they had connected at one point and became friends. The gunman didn't like her at first, but he seemed to like her over time. Amelia said as far as she knows, Gina and the gunman's partner were not close. But there is something really odd in those documents. You might remember in episode four, we told you that the gunman and his partner went out for a drive on Saturday, April 18th in the morning. They stopped in an industrial part of DeBert near the airport in the Diefenbunker. And the documents say they went by Gina's house, and the gunman pointed it out. In an interview she did on April 28, 2020 with police, his common-law partner said she wondered how he knew where Gina lived. Amelia wondered the same thing. But Gina's clinic was at her house, so it's pretty easy to find on Google. Does this mean the gunman had searched for it online? Had he visited her before? What was he doing there? Amelia said she was upset to learn this from the court documents at the same time that we did. So she confronted the RCMP about it. And so I had reached out to our liaison officer and kind of, I got, I was upset with him because I was like, hey, like, you know, we've had meetings with you and we've chatted and this was never brought up. 
why am I just reading about it? And because, uh, you know, that's pretty earth shattering to know that. And the response I got was that it wasn't actually her home that they had driven past and that it was her cottage, which is in the opposite direction. To be clear, the documents say the gunman drove by Gina's house, not her cottage. As we've said before, these documents summarize what police say they were told by witnesses. They're not always verbatim, and we have seen instances where they're outright wrong. Amelia said she asked the police to change the wording if it was incorrect, but they told her they can't change those documents after they've been filed in court. We asked the RCMP about this, and they refused to answer our questions. Gina's cottage is closer to Portapic, about a 25-minute drive west. The court documents don't make it clear exactly how long the gunman and his partner were out on that drive before the rampage or where they went. Amelia doesn't know for sure what to believe. But she does know the gunman stopped at her mom's house in Shubenacadie the next day because she and her husband got to the scene before police did. It was just after 11 when Amelia left her house. The drive to her mom's should have taken about half an hour, but on their way there, Amelia and her husband encountered roadblocks in Shubenacadie, around the crash scene where Joey Weber and Heidi Stevenson were killed. In the last episode, we told you it was just before 11 a.m. when the gunman crashed his car into Heidi's RCMP cruiser. He murdered her and then murdered Joey and stole his SUV. The gunman took off from the crash scene before police arrived. From that intersection in Shubenacadie, Gina's house was less than a two-minute drive away on Highway 224. So it was around 11.30 when Amelia got to those roadblocks. Police turned them around. They had to double back to get onto another highway. It added about 20 minutes to their drive. It angers me to know that we were so close at one point and, you know, Maybe she would still be alive if we had got there. Like, you know, maybe my husband and I wouldn't be here if we had got there any sooner. Like, it really, it's hard to understand that. By the time Amelia and her husband arrived, the gunman was gone. She wasn't comfortable talking about what happened when she got to the house. Understandably, this is incredibly difficult. The gunman killed Gina and shot her faithful German shepherd, Ginger, twice. Ginger, she's the shepherd that was injured. She's laying at my feet right now, actually. And then uh, she also has a little chihuahua named Ellie, and she's here. Uh, I have her as well, and they're both doing really great. A vet managed to save Ginger's life, and now Amelia has the animals her mother loved so much. They're a reminder of her mom. It's not clear how long the gunman was at Gina's house, but he took the time to change his clothes and his vehicle. He parked the vehicle that he stole from Joey Weber behind the house. Police say they found a correctional services jacket and RCMP pants in that SUV. Outside Gina's house, there was a gas can, an RCMP shirt, and a yellow reflective vest. The gunman was no longer disguised as a police officer, and he had once again switched vehicles. But as he drove Gina's Mazda away from the scene, he had only minutes left to live. Gabriel Wartman took the lives of 22 people that horrible weekend. 
and forever changed the lives of so many others. Hmm, getting by, like, it definitely comes in waves, that's for sure. Um, <clears throat> it feels like there's, you know, some weeks where you're doing really good and then there's others where you just, you feel like everything happened like five minutes ago all over again, so. As we said from the very beginning of this series, this is about asking questions, seeking accountability. And that's what many of the victims' families say has been lacking from the police and the government. They want answers now. It's really frustrating. I mean, it, uh, there's nothing that will change what happened, but um, I can't even imagine this ever happening ever again. And, uh, you know, there's got to be something that would be done differently, much differently. It's just, it's still hard to think that 22 people lost their lives. What could have been done differently? Getting an answer to that question and many others will likely take years. As we told you at the beginning of this story, the gunman is dead. There won't be a trial, but the families will be in court and in public hearings as they try to get answers. There will be a public inquiry into what happened that weekend, but the process of getting that was not easy. People started calling for an inquiry just days after the shootings. That included a group of law professors, Canadian senators, members of parliament, and the families of victims. Nova Scotia Premier Stephen McNeil and Justice Minister Mark Fury repeatedly said the federal government had to take the lead. They said an inquiry would need to examine the RCMP's handling of the case, and it's a national police force, so a provincial inquiry wouldn't be able to compel the RCMP to participate. The federal government avoided making any commitments, and this went on for months. Some of the families said that back and forth was re-traumatizing. During the summer months in 2020, it became clear that instead of a public inquiry, the provincial and federal governments were working to create some sort of review process with a restorative justice approach. Experts warned that would fall short of what the families were asking for. So in late July 2020, more than three months after the shootings, the victims' families came together to make sure everyone knew what they wanted. On July 22nd, I drove to Bible Hill, just outside of Truro. Hundreds of people were gathered in a grocery store parking lot. I don't think I'll ever forget what that day was like. Standing in that parking lot in the oppressive July humidity and seeing the pain etched on the faces of everyone there. Seeing Joey Weber's family, his dad, his sister Laura, his girls, his partner Shanda, who was pregnant at the time, they were all wearing black t-shirts with Joey's picture on it, something Shanda said he would have hated, something she felt she needed to do anyway. I watched Nick Beaton hand out popsicles to the kids, some of whom had lost a parent. These people lived through a horrific tragedy, and they said they felt as though no one was listening. Nick Beaton and Darcy Dobson spoke with a group of reporters. My mother is Heather O'Brien. And she was killed on the morning of April 19th. Uh, Nick Beaton. My wife was Kristen Beaton. Is Kristen Beaton. Um, she was, was killed the same morning. And they were very clear about what they wanted. Their language has changed from a public inquiry to a probe or taking the restorative justice approach. We deserve transparency. 
we deserve answers, the family, the ones that aren't here. We just, we want answers and the truth. Uh, we're done sitting back, just letting things go. It's been three months now. Um, we all talked as the families, all the families all support this and uh, we want a public inquiry and we don't want a probe. We don't want analyzed. We want a public inquiry. A public inquiry can compel witnesses to testify and subpoena evidence like a court can. It's a fact-finding mission. The goal is not to determine guilt, but to understand an event and to make recommendations for changes. Nick and Darcy talked about how they learned new information through the media instead of the investigators, the RCMP. We find out from you guys, the media. We're, yeah. we're, we, not one family member has been told something before we've seen it on the news. We get a message or a, a text or email saying, uh, watch the watch CTV at uh, you know six o'clock. There's this announcement coming out. Um, they said. Uh, in one press release that the families were notified before <laughs> anything. And were you? No. 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 Were any of you guys notified? We all learned from the media? Everything? Yeah. So, that's that's been... We have no more details than anybody else. So, that that's frustrating. Because these are our loved ones, and we deserve to have those details before the rest of the world does, not to sit on our coach on a Thursday evening and hear at the same time everybody else does. Many families have said the same thing, and they say this is still happening. We've told you about how frustrated they feel because they say they learn new information secondhand. We've shared with you what families say they weren't told by police, like the fact that the RCMP's only helicopter in Atlantic Canada was out for routine maintenance that weekend, or that police believe the gunman was in Portapic for longer than they initially said. And many families say a public inquiry is the first step, one way to rebuild trust. The biggest thing is nothing will bring our loved ones back. Nothing. What we're doing today won't bring them back. But it's to not happen to somebody else. Yeah. It could have been any anyone here. When, why they're here, it could have been them or their family members, or it could have been anyone. And everyone realizes that. And we need to change that. That morning, the group marched to the Bible Hill RCMP detachment. Some plainclothes officers were in the crowd. Some uniformed officers came out to talk. It was all very peaceful and respectful, just like the organizers wanted. It's, it's frustrating. That's the nicest word I can say. It's incredibly frustrating. Um, you wake up every morning hoping you're going to wake up from a nightmare. And you can't grieve if you don't have answers. <laughs> you, you can't grieve if you don't don't have the whole story. So we just want to be able to start our grieving process and have some sort of justice, I don't think is the right word, but it, it, we need transparency. The next day, the long-awaited announcement finally happened. The two men in charge, Nova Scotia's Justice Minister Mark Fury, a former Nova Scotia RCMP staff sergeant, and Canada's Public Safety Minister Bill Blair, the former Toronto police chief. Blair oversees the RCMP, and this is what he announced. The governments of Canada and Nova Scotia are launching a joint independent review of the April events to be conducted by a three-member independent review panel. These three individuals are prominent and experienced Canadians, and they have been selected because of their expertise in judicial fact-finding, independence, their knowledge of public safety and policing, and an understanding of the federal and provincial relations, rules, and responsibilities. Not an inquiry, 
a review that would be held behind closed doors. The three people chosen by government to lead this review would send their report to the government first, and they would decide what to release publicly. The panel had no power to compel witnesses or testimony, no power to subpoena evidence or to challenge any agency that refused to provide information, and no power to make binding recommendations to the government. This was not what the families asked for, and the provincial justice minister was asked why. We looked at a number of factors in exploring the options uh, that we had available to us, including uh, the the families uh, and others who were quite vocal in expressing their desire uh, for for answers. And, and in that, we identified uh, collectively uh, a focus on independence, uh, transparency, and impartiality. And those are the core attributes of an inquiry as well. And we feel with with all of the elements of this review and the scope that it, uh, it will encompass, that this review, bearing in mind those, that focus on those attributes, will in fact get the, the same outcomes and answers that uh, families and others are looking for. So if all these experts and the families were calling for a public inquiry, then who had asked for a review instead? There was no one that outright asked for a review. We looked at all of the factors in comparing a review to an inquiry. Uh, as I said earlier, the, the opportunity to respond in a much quicker way to the work uh, is through a review. And uh, I believe the review, given all of the factors and our ability to stand it up early and to get early response and early recommendations uh, is what we all want collectively. No one asked for this review. Not legal experts, not the families. The plan was to release an interim report in February 2021 and a final report in August 2021. Both ministers said speed was important. And what we heard very clearly, people need those answers and they need them as quickly as possible. And we're undertaking to get them those answers and that information and to then take action to ensure that we respond in an appropriate way. The governments also said they thought a public inquiry could be re-traumatizing to the families and this review would avoid causing further harm. But the families said speed was not what they were asking for. The backlash was swift. Lawyers representing the families said the review fell far short of what they deserved. More rallies were held, including one at Nova Scotia Justice Minister Mark Fury's office. People were outraged, and they made that known to their elected officials. Politicians in Nova Scotia, including five Liberal members of Parliament, broke ranks and said they wanted an inquiry. And then on July 28th, five days after the first press conference, Public Safety Minister Bill Blair backtracked on the original decision and announced a public inquiry would be held after all. It would have the ability to summon witnesses, compel testimony, and subpoena evidence. The next day in Halifax, a planned protest instead became a victory march for the victims' families and their supporters. Charlene Bagley was there, holding a sign with her picture of her dad, Tom Bagley. He was my father, my pride. He was my hero. A man that was very special. And to anyone that met him, 
that said that same. So yesterday was probably the first I felt felt in probably the last three months. Um, in saying that, I mean reality set in. I mean I, he's not coming back, and I know that. But at least now we hopefully can get the answers that the families need, and that's what I want it. So what we all want it. It's what our family members we lost would want. On October 22, 2020, a little over six months after the shootings, the federal and provincial governments officially established the inquiry and its mandate. Three commissioners are in charge. Two of them were originally appointed to lead that review panel, Michael McDonald and Leanne Fitch. Michael is a retired judge who used to be Nova Scotia's chief justice. Leanne was chief of the police in Fredericton, New Brunswick, before retiring in 2019. Part of the reason why there was a three-month delay in setting up the inquiry is because one of the people asked to lead that original review had to be replaced. Former Deputy Prime Minister Anne McClellan said a full inquiry was too much of a time commitment. Her exit made way for Kim Stanton. She's a Toronto lawyer who served two terms on the Federal Advisory Council on the strategy to prevent and address gender-based violence. And gender-based violence is specifically cited as one of the things the inquiry will look into, which is something advocates like Linda McDonald have called for from the beginning. That a feminist analysis is a holistic way of looking at caring about something that's happened. She started a petition that got more than 7,600 signatures and was sent to the prime minister in July 2020. We're not talking about the whole inquiry being a feminist analysis. We're talking about one section that we want in, inserted in it because without being asked to put it in there, it wouldn't happen. Tracy Viancourt agrees. She's the Canada Research Chair in School-Based Mental Health and Violence Prevention. She talked about injustice collectors back in Episode 5. Plenty of people have questioned why a feminist look at this tragedy is necessary. It's not like he just targeted women, right? There are men who died and there are women who died, and, and he seems to have targeted men and women across his lifespan. That's true. We don't know why the gunman did what he did or what his state of mind was. There have been other mass killings in recent years directly linked to misogyny and hatred of women. The Toronto van attack in 2018 is one example. A man drove a van into crowds of pedestrians on a busy street, killing 10 people, eight women, two men. He told police he carried out this attack in retribution for years of sexual rejection and ridicule by women. He said he was part of the incel movement, a fringe internet subculture of men who say they're involuntarily celibate. Then there's what may be the best known case of this kind of violence against women in Canada, the Ecole Polytechnic Massacre. On December 6, 1989, a gunman walked into an engineering university in Montreal, Quebec. He separated the men and the women and started shooting. 14 women were killed, 10 others injured. The gunman specifically said he wanted to kill feminists. But it wasn't until the 30th anniversary of that shooting in 2019 that a plaque was added to the memorial explicitly calling this tragedy an act of violence against women. Before that, there was discomfort and hesitation to call it what it was. So in contrast, we know very little about the Nova Scotia shooter's motivations. But experts say a feminist lens is a more nuanced and thorough way to look at the factors that might have contributed to a killing like this. 
We know that early warning signs were missed in this case. The gunman was a man with a history of violence who pleaded guilty to brutally assaulting a teenage boy in 2001, a beating that resulted in the boy being hospitalized. And the gunman's neighbor, Brenda Forbes, said she reported to police that he had illegal weapons and was violent toward his partner. But Brenda said police didn't take it seriously, and the RCMP say they have no record of her report. Experts like Tracy Viancourt say those were missed opportunities for intervention. Intimate partner violence is a huge red flag for people um, continuing on and aggressing against others. And research shows a link between violence against women and mass murder. For example, in 2018 alone, there were 18 mass murders in the United States. A common factor in 15 of those cases, more than 83%, was violence against women. That's cited in a paper co-written in 2020 by criminology professor Elizabeth Yardley at Birmingham City University in the UK. Elizabeth's paper claims that criminologists have failed to look closely at these links. She said she could only find one academic paper specifically examining violence against women in mass murders, and she said that's a cultural shift that could save lives. This is an inherently gendered kind of crime. Also looking at the perpetrators, women are the the minority in homicide offenses anyway, but they're even smaller in relation to mass murder. So that got me thinking that there is a really interesting thing going on in terms of mass murder, in terms not just of, of men being the ones who are committing it and women disproportionately being the victims, but in terms of how we think about masculinity in society today, how that masculinity is conceptualized and, and why it is that some men choose to do this whilst others don't. This is what the research shows us. Overwhelmingly, the people who commit mass shootings are men, 94%, according to one study. Another researcher found that nearly 4 in 10 victims of mass shootings are family members of the perpetrator. There's a pattern here. Mass killings often begin with a man killing or harming his family, and then sometimes going on to kill strangers in public locations. That's what police say happened in Nova Scotia, and experts argue that if we're ever going to make changes to prevent this kind of thing from happening again, we need to know what happened and why. And that means not looking at these killers as monsters who just snap one day, but understanding them as human beings who often have a history of dysfunction. That really emphasizes the concept of the other, you know, the person who isn't like the rest of us, the person who is this rogue outsider who comes in and kind of disrupts our way of life. But actually, when you look at most mass murderers, they are these so-called family men. You know, they are the ones who, who look like family men. They are husbands, they're fathers, um, and they have just kind of blended in because that misogyny that's, that's underlying their their sort of motivation to carry out these massacres has gone completely unchecked. If we can see that some mass murders begin with intimate partner violence, then what leads some men to this kind of violence and not others? Elizabeth said there's a critical gap in our collective understanding of intimate partner violence and its relationship to mass murder. And cases where someone kills their entire family and doesn't kill any strangers get less attention in the media than mass murders where it seems like the targets were random. It's part of the academic literature that 
hasn't really been explored. Um, even when you look at definitions of mass murder, when you look at um, profiles of the typical mass murderer, nobody is looking at the victims in terms of who they are um, or the existing relationships between perpetrator and victims. She also said people tend to ask the wrong questions about domestic violence. Like, why doesn't an abuse victim just leave and end the cycle? while ignoring the reality that many people, especially women, don't have the necessary power or resources to remove themselves from the situation. Well, now actually the question should be, why did he choose to abuse her? Why did he choose to behave in this way? So these mass murderers, these grievance collectors, injustice collectors, they are drawing on those larger narratives and that is actually enabling their offending. And I think that is why this continues to be a problem because we're not getting to the bottom of it. Farah Khan is another expert we spoke to about this part of the story. She's a gender-based violence educator at Ryerson University in Toronto, and she's frustrated with what she sees as a repeated lack of action. I am tired of writing reports. I'm tired of being a part of commissions, being a part of conversations that we're saying the same thing over and over again, that this is predictable and preventable, that the violence that happens that is seen as private in our homes impacts the public violence that happens in our community. And these things are linked. And I want people in positions of power, I want lawmakers, I want politicians, I want people that are educators, that are making decisions about how institutions are run, to understand that if they don't dismantle and address patriarchy in their workplaces, in our legislation, in our policy, if they don't enact what we ask them in the reports that we keep giving them, then nothing's gonna change. Farah said she wants to see things done differently this time by including different perspectives and listening to those voices. How can we build on the, the studies and reports that come out? How can this inquiry expand that, not be something that's creating a new wheel? We have multiple kind of conversations that have happened. Let's build on it, not create this whole new world. There is cautious optimism that this inquiry could be different, that it will include the context that's been asked for, but we still don't know a lot about how it will unfold. Nova Scotia's Mass Casualty Commission, as it's called, will hear testimony and gather evidence through public hearings. So far, in March 2021, no dates have been set for those hearings. The commission will release its interim report in May 2022 and a final report in November that same year. Those reports will still be submitted to government before they're released to the public, which is the opposite of what some legal experts have said should happen. And none of the recommendations are binding. That means governments can pick and choose what, if any, to implement. At the time of recording this episode, nearly one year after the killing spree, we still don't know much more. The commission has been hiring people and setting up office space. Six experts have been chosen to lead the teams involved. They have backgrounds in complex criminal cases, human rights issues, violence against women, policing, and mental health. And in addition to intimate partner violence, the inquiry will look at things like access to firearms, the police response, preparedness, communication with the public, and the gunman's prior interactions and relationships with the police and with social services. The commissioners have also been told they must conduct their work in a way that doesn't jeopardize any ongoing criminal investigation or any other investigation. It's not clear what that will mean if the hearings are underway while police are still actively investigating the shooting spree. 
but the RCMP say they will cooperate fully with the inquiry. The day of the Victory March on July 29, 2020, Nick Beaton spoke on behalf of the families to say thank you to everyone who supported them. First of all, I want to start off by saying this was not because of the government, right from Lenore Zan, right to the top of Bill Blair. This was because of the families, our determination, our drive, and the Nova Scotians, the Blue Nosers. All you guys that helped out. It just proves that the little man can have a voice if you band together and stay peaceful and respectful, that you can make a change even in our government, that, that together we can conquer. This victory was bittersweet. It took a fight to get here. Portapic resident Leon Jodry, who woke up to find his friends dead back in episode eight, said that fight never should have happened in the first place. Our prime minister should have called inquiry right away. He made people like me Darcy Dobson, Nick Beaton, Charlene Bagney, all pound their head against the wall for months until we got an inquiry. It never should have happened that way. Why? If this didn't deserve an inquiry, what does? The process of holding a public inquiry is supposed to ensure transparency, but in a way, it's actually doing the opposite. Within weeks of the official announcement of the inquiry, the RCMP stopped answering any questions from the media. Instead, the standard response has been some version of this statement, which they first sent to us in reply to questions on November 19th, 2020. It says, quote, From the outset of the H. Strong investigation, the RCMP committed to keeping the victims' families informed, as well as providing the public and media with the facts related to H. Strong, while maintaining the integrity of the investigation. The RCMP's commitment to transparency and accountability includes publicly reporting on our activities to help achieve those objectives, and we have done so since April 19, 2020. The RCMP recognizes the need to provide the factual account of what transpired this past April. With the public inquiry now ongoing, the most appropriate and unbiased opportunity to do so is with our full participation in the inquiry. The inquiry is underway and the RCMP is fully cooperating. The RCMP will respectfully refrain from further commenting on these matters outside of the inquiry. End quote. The government has used the inquiry to avoid answering questions, too. Since the announcement in the fall, there have been changes in the provincial government. A new premier was chosen in February after Stephen McNeil decided to retire, and a new justice minister has taken Mark Fury's place. And when we ask questions about what happened and what could or should change as a result of the shootings, they consistently say there's an inquiry happening. In February, I asked my colleague Carla Rennick to ask then-Premier McNeil what has changed in the months since the shooting spree from his perspective. Well, obviously the inquiry is ongoing. Uh, that will go through that process, uh, analyzing everything that happened that day. Certainly, uh, the alert system that we that uh, EMO is dealing with, uh, uh, they're working with the RCMP uh, to ensure that that line of communication uh, functions. Uh, I think uh, I heard somewhere that uh, when we did that uh, alert uh, in uh, back in April, it was the first time the RCMP had used that form of a, a way to communicate to uh, to. Canadians to the population. Uh, we wanted to make sure that they fully understand the process uh, and working with them. And uh, uh, Minister Porter has been doing that. Thank you. 
Um, and I'm sure, you know, we all hope that nothing like this ever happens again. But in the case that it should, what do you think will actually be different this time? You know, for example, New Brunswick uh, made the change to allow RCMP to send its own alerts. Are you are there any concrete changes that you uh, think will be different next time? That is ongoing right now. Uh, the inquiry, I'm, I'm sure, is going to bring us, uh, uh, you know, recommendations, uh, things that will have to change. And in mid-March of 2021, I put the same question to his replacement, Premier Ian Rankin. If this happened again, what would be different? We need to work, um, obviously, uh, with our um, stakeholders that are involved in, in police enforcement, our emergency centre, uh, so they have access to that. Uh, there's so many things we can do, um, I believe. And there is an independent inquiry that will go over everything from top to bottom um, that involves uh, different levels of government. Uh, I'm very eagerly awaiting the recommendations from that so how so that we can make sure uh, that a tragedy of, of like that never happens again in this province. The provincial government has introduced legislation to make it more difficult to impersonate a police officer. The Police Identity Management Act, introduced in March 2021, would make it illegal to own police uniforms, equipment, and vehicle markings. There are exceptions for police officers, movie makers, and museums, for example. This goes beyond the federal law against police impersonation by requiring all police agencies in the province to have a disposal policy for police articles and uniforms that includes a tracking policy. It also gives police the power to search and seize property without a warrant if they believe someone has police equipment or uniforms. The punishment for breaking this law would be a fine of up to $10,000 or up to three months in jail. Corporations could be fined up to $25,000. That's significantly less than the penalties in Australia, for example, where people can face prison time for possessing this kind of equipment. At the time we recorded this episode, the law is still being debated in the legislature. Families are seeking a form of justice on their own through two proposed class action lawsuits. And that's another way they'll get more information. They're suing the gunman's $2.1 million estate for damages and injuries he caused. They're also planning to sue the RCMP and the Nova Scotia government. Their law firm has hired an investigator who's collecting evidence and tips from the public to figure out what happened. And if the suit goes ahead, the RCMP and the province will have to provide information to the families in discovery. The lawsuit alleges the RCMP failed to protect the public. It's seeking damages, saying the RCMP didn't investigate tips that the gunman had illegal weapons and was abusive. It alleges the RCMP didn't send enough members to Portapique on April 18th that they failed to contain the gunman that night, failed to deploy the emergency response team in time, and failed to use the emergency alert system. Sandra McCullough is one of the lawyers representing the families. I mean, it, it's difficult, as you can imagine, to, to, to properly grieve and to properly move on, um, not knowing, you know, just basic details about things that happened or, or why they happened. And, you know, I don't just mean in relation to why the government did what he did, but also why the investigation is happening the way that it did. For this class action lawsuit to go ahead, it has to be certified, meaning a judge will have to decide if the people who filed the lawsuit belong to a class and can sue together. The certification process in cases like this can take years. The RCMP and the province of Nova Scotia haven't filed a statement of defense. 
and that doesn't have to happen until after the class is certified. A certification hearing is set for October 2021, but Sandra said that's likely to be delayed. You know, it, it, I can only imagine how it feels to, to try to cope with a loss, but not understand it. Um, and, you know, so to a certain degree, I'm sure that we, nobody ever can really understand what happened here with, with you know, the gunman being deceased. You know, nobody can really speak to what was going on in his mind when he was committing these crimes. But um, to the extent that there are answers to be had, um, it, it's only holding things up for them. There has not been a lot of openness or transparency when it comes to what happened on April 18th and 19th. Not for the media, not for the public, and not for the families of the victims. After the shooting spree, the RCMP held six press conferences in six weeks, and then they essentially stopped talking. The effects of that lack of communication have been wide-reaching. Some families say the trust has been eroded every time their questions have gone unanswered, every time they've learned about a development in the case from the media or another source. Amelia Butler said she's bracing herself for more hard days, having to relive this tragedy in the public eye once the inquiry gets going. It's going to be really difficult, but I think that it's totally necessary. So, um, you know, personally, um, I'm just going to try my very best to, yeah, to embrace it and, um, and just work through it. And there's, you know, a pretty good support system of people that are around you know, the families and the people that have been affected. So, um, and a whole province that's kind of standing by with us too. So it definitely um, makes it more bearable, I would say, to know that so many people care and and are uh, wanting the same answers and uh, changes that, that we do. So that does help. In many ways, we're still at the beginning of understanding what happened and why. And for the loved ones of the people who were murdered, for the communities affected, the grieving and the healing is only just beginning. Some people globally have told me this could be a 20-year span for these communities. That's if we lean in. That's something we're exploring in our next episode. And we're also reaching back, decades before April 2020, into a part of the gunman's history that we haven't explored up until this point. I hope when this story is told, um, and it's, it's being told over and over and over, I, I hope that, that the whole story comes out. In two weeks, the final hour of the killing spree comes to an end. Thank you so much for joining us this week. 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre is written and produced by me, Sarah Ritchie, and Alex Cress. Our story producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and audio production by Rob Johnston. Editing assistance from Neil Benedict. Additional reporting for this episode by Global News reporter Carla Rennick and investigative reporter Brian Hill. Special thanks to Mike D'Souza, managing editor for the Global News Investigative Unit. I'd love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing 13 Hours on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We have much more on our website, including articles, maps, and photos. All of that written and curated by Brian Hill, Alex Kress, and me. Just head to globalnews.ca slash 13hours. You can also find us on Instagram at 13hourspodcast. 
If you have a question about this episode and series, please get in touch on social media or by email at 13hours at curiouscast.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Our contact information is in the show notes too. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.